Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Dhammam Sangam Namasami Practice Practice is every day a new project and there are certain attitudes that are helpful and one of them is to remember that every day is new that means that we don't know what's going to happen we don't know how much is going to happen that we like or don't like but if we're open the important thing is is for us to be open to whatever is happening And that openness is not easy to develop. And while I was adjusting my robe, I was thinking, what if we had a prerequisite for attending a day of mindfulness? Everybody has to wear a robe for the day. You'd be so worried about keeping this thing on your body. Just use that 
lack of taking responsibility as um, a way of being strong enough or powerful enough to continue causing harm without any kind of uh, repercussions. Visible, anyway. Although the repercussions karmically will come. They will surely come. And it's hard to have faith in karma when you see what looks completely unjust, evil, horrific, inhuman, being perpetrated in the world without any kind of uh, force capable of impeding it, restraining it. It just it, So then we think the world is crazy. Well, you know it is crazy. It's a crazy world. But we cannot make the world not crazy. And as I said this morning, I think that for me the project is, what can I do now, right now? Where is the craziness in here? I have to deal with that. And maybe that will help me to see the craziness in the world, the madness of the world, without falling into despair. And that in itself is a huge project. If we could do that, then it might help in some mysterious way. It might help to increase the restraint of madness around us. It might help to increase the, the frequency of well-being and wisdom and understanding and care that is possible in the world. It, like, if there is a contagion of evil, there must be a contagion. And then that might not be the right word, but a connection to what is pure and what is leads to waking up from the mess. And the other thing is that we have to be so patient. It's just uh, the ultimate austerity is patient endurance. The Buddhas say it's the the highest austerity, and it, it leads to the highest happiness. Is the kanti parami. It's also the highest renunciation. And if we could give up our opinions about the madness of the world. That would also help us to be patient with it. It doesn't mean that we agree. That's the important thing. We have to draw a distinction be between what is acceptable. It doesn't mean we accept it, agree with it, but we have to bear through it. We have to endure it because it is unstoppable. And if we look carefully, this thread of violence has never stopped. When has war actually stopped in the human realm? Has it ever really stopped? I think what's happening now is that there are six billion, how many billion human beings? Seven? Seven billion people on this planet, and there are and everybody's got a cell phone. <laughs> Not everybody, but it's getting more and more. So everybody is finding out everything, 
and you can tune in to the worst things and then tear your, the roots of your hair out uh, with, with um, fear and with anxiety and panic about what's going on. Whereas before these inventions of cell phones and technologies that draw the world into whatever the media put out, we could focus more on our own little patch of territory, which is much more doable. Like just talk to your brother, talk to your sister, talk to your parents, talk to your kids. Is that happening? What are the broken relationships that we can repair, that we have some ability to influence? through our own dedication and inclination towards the indestructible goodness that we have within us. And not to give up faith in that at any cost. So we have to contemplate how in our lives we do compromise ourselves and clean up our own slate. And if we can do that, that's heroic. That's a heroic measure. That's diffusion of a lot of weaponry. Because each of us has the ability to protest and rage and clench our fists against other people's violence. But what are we doing with our own? And this is a, uh, this is a core question that we need to look at. So every day we sit down and we start the project from A. A, awake. B, Buddha mind. C, concentration. D, quick, quick. Dhamma. Dhamma, Dhamma. <laughs> Dhamma. E, effort. F, fanatic. <laughs> fanatic effort. G, generosity, gratitude, goodness. And we can go through the whole alphabet like that. And when we get to Z, I don't know what we would say. Zealous. Do it zealously. Don't give up. Don't give up. There have been so many times in my life when there were conditions that seemed insurmountable. There were obstacles that oppressed. I felt very oppressive. I just don't know how I'm still sitting here today. And then I realized that, in fact, my perception of what, what's oppressive was just diluted. That's the, the bottom line. How do we hold what we consider to be an obstacle? If our perception is is diluted, then we're going to hold it like, I, there's no way over or through or around this. Mm-hmm. But if we clear away and purify our ability to see things, then those untrained ways of perceiving our experiences and what life is bringing can be illuminated. And right view can arise, the mind can become very, very clear, and the qualities of mindfulness and real trust in the practice can rise up to hold us in in a way that will incline the mind towards Nibbana, 
instead of towards despair and more delusion or depression, even worse. Depression is like sustained despair, I think. It's like a tree. Yesterday, we have this man helping us out at the Hermitage who does uh, heavy work that we can't do ourselves. We have this tree that dried up last year and has been standing dead right outside the main house. And it's not auspicious to have a dead tree there. <laughs> so he asked, would you like me to cut that tree down? And we felt, it is time. Now this tree was leaning in a very odd way. And he sawed it. And the way he sawed it, it looked like it was going to fall on a tree that was next to it. But then he did something that I thought was so creative to make it fall in the other direction because he had a little saw. He's very brilliant. He had this scheme how to make this tree supported while he sawed it to the end so that it would fall the other way, not on the tree and possibly on the house. He took a plank of wood, stuck it in the ground, and pushed it in against one of the main limbs of the tree. He wasn't going to ask any of us <laughs> little weak old women <laughs> to try to hold up this tree. So he got this very strong plank of wood from our pile of recycled wood and propped the tree like it dug its heels into the earth and the head of the plank was leaning into the tree. And then when he sawed, you could see how the weight of the tree fell on the plank. But then when the tree started to twist and shift, he took the plank out quickly and stuck it further in so that it kept, he could continue sawing and it kept standing up straight. And then by the time he had sawed through, he just used practically one finger and it fell over in the opposite direction. And I thought, how clever is that? We used a plank of wood instead of a person because there was no other person that he felt he was going to risk. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, that's what we have to do with our practice. When we don't have the means, we have to look around and see, find a creative way to prop ourselves up so that we're leaning towards Nibbana and not towards the death of mindfulness. We have to find a creative way to do that. Even if the mind is screaming, even if the mind is on fire, as soon as we can bring up enough awareness to notice, well, which way is the mind pointing right now? Well, it's not pointing towards the Dhamma. It's pointing towards darkness, towards delusion. So how do I prop myself up? How do I lean myself back towards waking up? And we lean on that. If it's loving kindness, or it's forgiveness, or even if it's awareness of non-anger. Like supposing the mind is impassioned with resentment because somebody has been really unskillful to us and we don't know how to respond. But we don't have to respond right away. We can wait and try to cool down. We know that much. But we're trying to cool down, cool down, it's not working. 
Can we look in there and the way you look for a needle in a haystack almost, or in the grass? I lost a beautiful needle in the grass the other day. But, uh, never found it, but I found a lot of other things in the grass. <laughs> <laughs> so you find a shred of non-anger. There is, there is some beauty in the heart. There is some love and goodwill in the heart that we can touch. We just have to brush it off a little bit in the middle of this scalding, burning feeling that's possessing the mind. We just move towards the little edge which is cooler and lean into it and see, well, yeah, think of somebody in your life that you you really love and respect. And then bring up gratitude towards that person. Cultivate that feeling. Eventually, the, the, the thought, the sense of that non-anger will obstruct the passion of ill will that's boiling over. And it will turn the volume down on it. So it is, we haven't met it on, head on. You can't meet the dragon head on. We all know that, right? Because the dragon has a fierce tail, and it will just whack us from behind. So we have to figure out a way to lean away from the dragons towards that which is kind, gentle, like a lily pad in the lake. It might be that small, but it's good enough moment by moment Two moments of being on that lily pad, and we're floating. We're not sinking. And before you know it, it's it's a canoe. It's a kayak. It's an island. An island of safety. And then, from that position, we can lead into that which will rescue us. And that which will incline us towards refuge, uh, understanding, Strength, courage, fearlessness, where there was just fear, despair, hopelessness, and bitterness, inability to function. And then we can not accept the other, but let it be. It's a different kind of accepting. It's not approving of it, but it's letting it be and holding up something different, something that is going to support our growth and expansion in the practice. We can take down the dead tree. And what happens when the dead tree is not anymore endangering even the house we're staying in? Well, there's space and you can have a better view through the window. So the mind feels more spacious and we can have a better view of that anchor and say, that's not me, not mine. Then the Dhamma rushes in and gives us all kinds of insights into that anger. Wow. Dangerous, hot stuff. Stay away. And work towards creating an insular posture towards it so that it cannot take a root in our hearts. It cannot get a good landing in there. That takes time. Okay, we have this one life and we should feel a sense or it's good to feel a sense of spiritual urgency. But as long as it takes, whether it's one lifetime or many lifetimes, we're in it 
for the whole length of the journey. And we're not going to give up. That's the bottom line. And that's like wearing the robe. And first it feels really awkward and you're just wriggling and squirming, but eventually you can even carry uh, a big package and keep your robe on at the same time. As hard as it may seem. But practice, we practice and we get adept at whatever we're practicing. And we have to be very patient with ourselves. Patient and loving and gentle and playful. Don't take ourselves too seriously. Otherwise it can get pretty heavy and odorous. And be creative. Get an old piece of wood. Prop the old heart on it. And, and just relax into the problem. And the answer will come. The question will unravel. And we'll suddenly feel the support coming from the most unexpected quarters. I'm sure all of us have experienced that in one way or another. Some unexpected hand reaches out and offers to help, offers to listen. You need to talk to someone, offers to listen. And you feel a, a sorrow shared. It's a sorrow cut in half. And a joy shared is a joy doubled, expanded. So we share our joys and we share our sorrows. And that's the beauty of Sangha. We have a spiritual community rather than hanging out with a band of thieves. We hang out with a, a group of good spiritual friends who help us move in the direction that leads towards awakening and away from what is dragging us down into the depths of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. These are to be overcome. And the Buddha said, spiritual friendship is 100% of the path. We need to be careful about feeling a sort of spiritual arrogance. You know, well, I don't need to go and sit with a group. I can do it alone. Maybe sometimes, but at other times, uh, look for the friends that can give us a hand when we're in trouble and have the ability to ask for help, to ask for a hand to reach out to, that, like that little lily pad, it might be out of reach. So you ask for somebody to help get you to the other, to a safe side of the river where you can climb on the shore and rest till you're strong enough to keep going. And uh, I've experienced that over and over and over again, living the monastic life. And I often marvel at the kind of women that come forward to take the robe and make the commitment against sometimes a fierce wind blowing. And you don't know what strength you have until you use it. And when you use it, you find, you feel surprised at what we can endure and persevere through. 
Our culture can be a bit soggy sometimes. We have so much comfort. When it's hot, there's a fan. When it's cold, there's a heater. We just have so many conveniences and comforts. So uh, we tend to be spoiled. Spoiled for comfort. And you think about people who, like um, listening to talks given in uh, Wat Pampong or Wat Pananachat by some of the Ajahn Chah monks back in the 80s, 70s, 60s, late 60s, Ajahn Smedo. And sitting on a bare marble or concrete floor for hours and, and you couldn't move because the teacher's eyes were on you. And uh, your spiritual companions would think less of you if you moved. And the pressure was on, talking about pressure. So you didn't move, and here we're softer. But what comes up in the heart is not softer. And so we have to, it doesn't matter so much. Physical austerities are one thing, but many of those monks ended up leaving anyway because they could endure the physical austerities, but they couldn't endure the mental austerities. Those are the rocks where we can get easily dashed to pieces. And we need every tool in our spiritual toolkit. Not just to carry it, like, look at my beautiful tools, but to know how to use them. And when the pliers don't fit, then take something else that will get the nail into the wood or take it out of the wood or make a straight angle or whatever we have to do. Make a straight course to keep our virtue intact, to keep our mindfulness intact, to uplift and buoy our faith and to concentrate on what is worthy of concentrating on and to leave the rest aside. Not to be distracted by things that will not take us on the journey to Nibbana. So we have to be wise and discerning, like when you go shopping, you choose fruit that is not rotten to eat. You pick, try to pick the fruits that are going to last. So you have something in the fridge that you can eat for a few days. If you pick soft, mushy fruit, then it'll go bad very quickly. And that way we have to pick up and nourish ourselves on what will support our spiritual journey, not what is just an idle, fleeting, pleasant experience, like just a pleasurable mind state and we keep trying to get that back, get that back. But meanwhile, we're missing the agitation and restlessness that we're developing as a result of clinging to a mind state from a retreat two years ago. That's living in the past. That's clinging to what's gone. Instead of noticing that, we continue to cling to that, that memory. Uh, instead of noticing that what it's doing to our ability to practice with what is arising here and now. And to notice the 
the greed or the agitation, and to work with that, that would be much more fruitful for us than longing for something that's gone. And that can apply to so many other things in life. Lost friendships, lost possessions, lost strength, lost functioning of, of the body, so many situations. And then the ability to use renunciation and precepts to let go when it's suitable to let go and to be determined, like have that kind of strength of determination that, especially like around speech, no, I'm not going to talk about that person. I'm not going to ridicule. I'm not going to um, laugh. Uh, at something uh, that isn't really funny just because everyone else is. I've got to stand up for what is what is true and what is kind rather than at the cost of someone else's dignity. I, I see this all the time. How uh, people create comedy uh, which is at the expense of somebody else's dignity. without leaving the body behind. 
and we all have to leave this room one way or another. Uh, so the point is that we can bring health to the mind, the heart. We can leave the body with a healthy mind. That's really important. What is the condition of the mind? Are we awake? Are we aware? Are we con living consciously? Are we dying consciously? Or are we thrashing and resisting and not accepting? The journey doesn't stop when the body disappears. That's important to reflect on. We only understand these parameters, the way they define life, or the human journey, or I would rather call it the spiritual journey, is what we know of this realm, but we don't really know very much that we can trust. And then accept or get used to make peace with not knowing. We have to work with, within our, our needs and our capacity and develop our ability to understand ourselves. And then to die consciously, we may discover something that we couldn't have imagined before. That which is beyond this world. What's really important for us to investigate and to discover is what we can know. And the mind is so vast, so boundless. Even in a lifetime, how can we fully, completely explore the depth of the mind? So we must begin in earnest, continue in earnest, and fulfill the journey here and now as best as we can, in little steps, in little sips, just like a sick patient. You take a course of antibiotics, and it's pill by pill. You can't get well until you take the full course. If we want to graduate, we have to take the gradual path. It's graduation is it's a gradual thing. In graduated steps, we learn about impermanence at deeper and deeper and deeper levels. We learn about dukkha, about suffering in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. And we learn about this not-selfness. We're very identified with the core being. Let's investigate what is really solid within us. And little by little we discover there's nothing, nothing really at the core like a banana tree. It doesn't have a core like other trees. It's quite quite unique in that way. So these are things to discern. And the deeper we go, the more we we discover this emptiness. And the less we fear it. The less we fear it. And then it informs our consciousness and our perception of the world. So that we have the ability to see things in a way that makes it possible to accept them, not approve them. Yeah, that's how it is. That's come on.
Wearing the robe of Dhamma is, uh, it takes a long time to get used to it. But if we have the patience, we end up wearing it gracefully and fearlessly. And we know that it is, it's the way that will help us to free ourselves from all our opinions and judgments. Those are the biggest obstacles. I always like to call opinions open onions. (laughs) (laughs) And they smell. They smell. Smelly and they just cause a lot of weeping. They make us weep. 